Well, good morning and welcome to Faith Bible Church on this beautiful Sunday morning. My name is Seth Brown. I'm the pastor of Adult Connections. And on behalf of all of the church staff and elders, we are thankful that you have gathered with us this morning, wherever you are, uh, wherever you're, where, whether you're here in Edmond or around the world. Uh, we thank you uh, for joining us once again online this morning as we worship the Lord together. We are encouraged uh, by the fact that so many of you are gathering with us and that uh, you're, you're tuning your hearts uh, to Christ and know him better each Sunday. And now wherever you are today, we would love to take a we would love for you to take a picture of your family uh, so we can see your smiling faces and post it on social media. You can use the hashtag FaithBibleAtHome. Again, that's hashtag FaithBibleAtHome, and we would love to see those pictures. Uh, and as much as I am encouraged by our online gathering and have been since we started this thing, I'm going to be really honest this morning. Uh, I really miss normal Sunday mornings. I, I was thinking about this a lot this week. Uh, the, the little things I miss, the simple things I miss, like shaking people's hands in the foyer or just catching up with people, uh, with friends. Uh, awkward Christian side hugs, you know, the ones where you sort of do this. Um, but in all honesty, I, I just miss seeing all of you. Um, I, I think if you talk to any of us on the church staff, that we would, see the, we would say the same thing, that we miss gathering with the families of our church, uh, this community of believers each Sunday, to lift up the name of Jesus and to see his name praised. And so I would ask us uh, this morning just to pray. Uh, I know we all long to see the day uh, we can gather safely back together again, but, but pray for that day. Pray that God brings that day sooner rather than later. Uh, and pray for each other until that time comes, that God would continue to use these unprecedented circumstances in these really strange days to draw us closer to Jesus and, and to, to make his name known in this world. And so now, this morning, as we prepare our hearts to worship him, uh, through, through singing, through hearing his word preached, uh, join me as I pray for us that we would be joyful people, content people, and people who long to know uh, Jesus in a better way. So let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you so much, God, for the opportunity to gather, even as we're scattered around the world, scattered around Edmond. We thank you for the opportunity to gather, uh, to worship your name, to lift up uh, your name this morning uh, as families, um, as friends, as believers in Jesus. And I, I pray, God, that you would use this time to strengthen our faith, use this time to focus our hearts upon you and you alone. God, with so many distractions and so many worries and so many cares that we have right now, God, we want to give you this time. We ask that you would just uh, be in our midst, God, wherever we are, uh, whoever we're with, God, that you would uh, draw us closer to yourself and that your name would be lifted high. God, glorify yourself this morning in our gathering. We give you this time, we commit our lives to you, and we ask that you would just continue to make us more like Jesus. And we ask all of these things in his name. Amen. We have one hope, and that's Jesus Christ, and we want to sing to him this morning. So join us in that place. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone.
This is from Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19. It says this, So the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine. Though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. So in every circumstance, we want to praise the Lord and let it be well with our soul. So let's sing together. When peace like a
fix our eyes collectively on Jesus, who holds our hope, who's our foundation. He's better than any other thing. He's better than any comfort, better than health, better than riches. Let's sing to him. There is no other so sure and steady. My hope is held in your hand. When castles crumble and breath is fleeting, upon this rock I will stand. Upon this rock I will stand.
Amen. Thank you so much for leading us today in worship. We're going to have another song at the end, a great song to sing as we uh, close out our service. So uh, we'll look forward to singing that together. It's, it's great to be with you all wherever you are today. It's wonderful uh, to be with you. As uh, Seth said earlier, we miss you all so much. We can't wait to, to be gathered back together here again. But uh, we pray uh, that during this time, uh, during this day, today, especially this Lord's Day, that uh, wherever you are today, that through our time of worship, our time in God's Word together, uh, that you're going to really sense God's presence uh, with you today in a unique way. Um, you know, here in, in Oklahoma City, this is an important day in, in the history of our city. Uh, this is the 25th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, that really uh, has indelibly imprinted our city and and our lives for those of us who were uh, alive during that time. Uh, Probably all of us remember where we were uh, when that took place. Um, I remember uh, in our house here in Edmond, uh, we were about probably 15 or 20 miles uh, north of downtown Oklahoma City, and uh, the back door of our house that was locked and deadbolted actually blew open. Uh, from, from that blast. Uh, that's, that just uh, shows us some of the, the devastation that occurred. And I'm sure every, every one of us here remember where we were uh, during that time. So we want to uh, pray for our city and pray for those who lost friends and loved ones uh, that disaster 25 years ago. And uh, just commit our, our time here to the Lord today. So, today. So, so bow your heads with me in prayer as we come and commit ourselves uh, to the Lord. Uh, Father, we come before you today. And we come as your scattered, gathered people, uh, scattered in a lot of various places, but gathered together, and we're gathered together in and under uh, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that name that is above every other name. And we're gathered together today, wherever we are, to worship you and to learn from your word, and Father, to be ministered to uh, by your Spirit. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you for so great salvation that he's provided for each one of us through his death and his resurrection. Father, I pray that you'll have your good and gracious hand on every heart and every home today that's watching this live or watching it archived. Father, help us to be faithful in our generation, to be faithful in these times in which you placed us, to be witnesses for you and ambassadors for you. Father, we look to you today for families who lost friends and loved ones back in 1995. We know that for many of them today, Father, old wounds are being reopened. Uh, Memories are are flooding in, many good memories, I'm sure, but also many very difficult ones as well. Father, pour, pour out your grace and your comfort upon them and upon our city today. Father, we look to you today for our president, for our legislators, for our governors, Pray for our own governor here in Oklahoma, Governor Stitt. Pray that you'd give them wisdom to know how to navigate this situation that we're in, to, to, to do what's best for, for people's safety, but also to uh, revive our economy as well. So, Father, just give them a, a, an uncanny wisdom, a wisdom from on high, and that they'll depend upon you and lean upon you for that. Father, you tell us in your word that the entrance of your word gives light. So I pray that we'd open our hearts and our minds together now as we open the Word of God together to receive light from on high. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here in uh, these last few weeks, since we've kind of been dealing with all of this uh, coronavirus and and sheltering in place and all these various things, I've kind of been doing some some, uh, one-time messages Um, And I want to continue that this morning, but um, next week I want to get back to our study of 2 Peter. You may remember that, that we left off some weeks ago in our study of uh, of 2 Peter before uh, we headed uh, to Israel, uh, but I want to come back to that starting next week. So we'll begin back in chapter 2 of 2 Peter next time, but this morning I want to bring one more message that I pray will really minister to us in these times in which we find ourselves. It's a message from Philippians chapter 4 that I've titled, Ready for Anything. So if you'll take your Bible, uh, wherever you are, and uh, turn with me there to Philippians chapter 4, let me read verses 10 to 13. These are very familiar verses uh, probably to many of us, certainly verse 13 is. Let me read these verses for us. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret 
of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Well, may the Lord write His eternal word on our hearts this morning. I love to play golf. Um, my, my wife and I love to play golf together. And, uh, but there's, there's one place where I'm not sure I would enjoy playing golf, and that's uh, the Calcutta Country Club. The Calcutta Country Club in India was uh, founded by British uh, colonists uh, there many, many years ago. And uh, in the, the handbook, the rule book, if you will, for the Calcutta Country Club, rule number 10 says this, play the ball where the monkey drops it. Now, that's probably the strangest rule in any rule book and any golf course probably in the world. And there's obviously a background uh, to that. Um, there in uh, the Calcutta Country Club, uh, trees, large trees line the fairways. And those trees are filled with monkeys. And uh, the monkeys love to come out for some reason. They're fascinated with golf balls bouncing down the fairway. And every so often, a monkey will come out and grab one of these balls and take off running with it over into the trees. And of course, uh, you know, the caddy takes off running after the, uh, the, the monkey, and finally, usually, the monkey will drop the ball somewhere and then scamper um, up the tree. And it's such a problem there and so disruptive to the game as people tried to go find their ball and bring it back to where it was originally that they decided to enact this rule, rule number 10, you play the ball uh, where the monkey drops it. And I like that story because sometimes life can be like playing golf at the Calcutta Country Club. Uh, we, we tee it up and we swing for success. We hit the ball uh, straight down uh, the fairway, only to find the ball has moved. We're having to play out of the rough somewhere or out of some deep sand trap. Uh, look, let's face it, for all of us, we know this well. Life can mess uh, with our plans. And that's the situation that we're in today, obviously, many of us, all of us. Coronavirus has come and, and kind of put us in the rough. It's dropped the ball in a, a sand trap. And we all sense that. I think mothers sense that a lot today. Uh, Mothers have uh, maybe all the kids at home cooking three meals a day. You become now suddenly not only mom, but you become the teacher and uh, the counselor. Uh, Many of uh, the ladies in our church who work outside the home are are in the home now all day there. Many of our men are are working at home as well, the fathers. Everybody's kind of trying to find their own kind of quiet place to work and keep their distance from one another. Everything has changed suddenly. Schedules have changed dramatically. Uh, Routines have been altered. I mean, after all, you're watching services right now, a live stream on uh, your your, uh, computer or some electronic device. Um, I'm preaching here to basically an empty room. Um, College students are back home. Graduation ceremonies have been canceled or delayed. Life kind of seems out of kilter. Um, stress is kind of is mounting in, in our culture. You can feel it. Our patience is kind of being whittled away a little bit at a time. We're being tested emotionally in ways we never imagined. Uh, for many people, financial resources are shrinking. They're running low. You may be watching uh, your business kind of slowly die before your eyes. Your job may be uncertain, or maybe you don't have a job uh, to go back to. I know some of you maybe who are elderly or are struggling with inactivity and isolation and boredom. Look, in times like these, all of us have to learn the skill of playing the ball where life drops it, of being ready for anything. And in Philippians chapter 4, we meet a man who's ready for anything, the Apostle Paul. Paul had known lack in his life, and he'd known plenty. He'd known little. He'd known much. He'd known loss. He'd known gain. Yet he tells the Philippians that he had discovered a secret that allowed him to live victoriously in every situation and every circumstance of life. The Apostle Paul had learned the secret of contentment. Look, all of us know this. We can't control what happens around us, but we can control what happens within us in response to what's happening around us. I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, what life does to us depends on what life finds in us. And within Paul, there was a reliance and there was a dependence upon the provision and the power of Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into this text in detail, let's put this text in its context. Um, Here's when Paul is writing to the Philippians, the date is A.D. 62. 
So it's about 10 years after Paul had founded uh, the church at Philippi on his second missionary journey. And as Paul writes these words here in Philippians chapter 4, Paul is in prison. Um, He's under house arrest in Rome. You can read about that in Acts chapter 28. He's living there in his own rented quarters, it says. Now, it's kind of like a lot of us today. In fact, one of the reasons I wanted to look at this passage today is a lot of us may feel like we're under house arrest, and we're kind of living in our own quarters, if you will, uh, but living under some kind of house arrest. But that's where Paul is in his life at this time. Now, Paul's been in prison when he writes Philippians for probably four years. Remember, Paul was arrested in the land of Israel and spent two years in prison there in Caesarea. And then he appeals to Caesar, and he's taken to Rome, and he's probably nearing the end of this first Roman imprisonment. So all told, now he's been in prison for about four years. Now, the Philippians had supported Paul financially ever since the church was founded there. Ten years earlier, Paul had founded the church. Ever since that time, the Philippians would find out where Paul was, and they would send him financial gifts. You'll notice down in verse 15, Paul says, You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. So they'd been been faithful partners with Paul um, in the gospel, but they hadn't been able to send Paul a financial gift for a while. We don't know why they hadn't sent the gift. Um, We know that these were very poor believers from what it tells us in the book of Corinthians. Uh, Probably they didn't know where Paul was many times, but they had found out now that he's under house arrest in Rome, and they'd sent a gift to Paul through a man named Epaphroditus. We read about him back in in chapter 2 of this book. But their delay in sending the gift was not a lack of concern. It was a lack of opportunity. Again, Paul traveled so much, they probably lost track of him at times and didn't know where he was, because obviously news traveled very slowly in that day. But somehow they found out where Paul was, and they immediately sent him a gift, a financial gift, with this man named Epaphroditus. And Paul receives the gift. When he does, he breaks out in praise and celebration. Notice verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Literally, I I, I rejoiced immensely that now at last you've revived your concern for me. The word revived is used of plants coming back to life or blossoming. He says, your concern for me has blossomed again, and they had sent this gift uh, to Paul. But notice he says, I rejoiced in the Lord immensely. Certainly they had sent the gift, but Paul gives the ultimate credit to God who had provided them the ability to do that. Now, in writing this, Paul is celebrating and thanking them. In fact, one of the purposes of this book is it's a thank you note from Paul to the Philippians. But Paul wants to remove any regret that they might be feeling about not sending money sooner. They certainly had regret that they had not been able to to send some money to Paul at earlier times. So Paul is thankful for their gift. He wants them to know how grateful he is. But he also wants them to know that even when they didn't send money and were unable to do it, that he was still content. In other words, that his sufficiency uh, was lying elsewhere. So in verse 11, Paul shifts from celebrating their gift to affirming his contentment, saying, look, I'm thankful you all sent the money, but I don't want you to worry that when you're not able to do it, that somehow I'm going to be lacking or discontent. Paul wants him to know that whatever circumstance he finds himself in life, he's content. What we have in these verses before us is three characteristics of Christian contentment. These are three truths that will enable you and me to be ready for anything in life. So let's look at these three characteristics of Christian contentment. First of all, we see here that contentment is dynamic. It's dynamic. Notice in verse 11, notice he says, in whatever circumstances I am. In verse 12, he says, in any and every circumstance. So Paul's contentment is dynamic. He's content in every circumstance at every time. It's a a continual contentment in the life of the Apostle Paul. I like the way John Phillips uh, states it in his commentary on Philippians. He says, whatever his circumstances were, Paul was content. 
When he was hailed enthusiastically upon his return to churches he had planted, Paul was content. When he was chained to a particularly impatient and unsympathetic Roman soldier, Paul was content. When he and his friends were on their journey to Jerusalem to deliver a generous gift from Gentile converts on the mission field, Paul was content. When he was preaching to scholars in the intellectual capital of the world, Paul was content. When he was leading a runaway slave to Christ, Paul was content. When he was preaching to a king, Paul was content. When he was writing a theological masterpiece, Paul was content. When he was waiting to appear before a court that could sentence him to death, Paul was content. And on and on we could go. But Paul was content across the spectrum of the circumstances of life. I read a story uh, years ago about uh, a man who walked up to a friend. They were both Christian men. And he asked his friend, how are you doing? And his friend said, well, I'm doing okay under the circumstances. And his friend said, well, what are you doing under the circumstances? He says, the Christian life is to be lived uh, above the circumstances. And I like that. Because a lot of times we say that in life, I'm doing okay under the circumstances. As believers in Jesus Christ, we don't live our lives under the circumstances, but over and above them. And that's the way Paul lived. He, He lived above the circumstances of life. Now remember when Paul is writing the book of Philippians, he isn't staying at the Four Seasons in Rome. He's not living here at some uh, uh, luxurious spa. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. But Paul knows even though he's there imprisoned in Rome, he knows that he's there under God's hand and according to God's providence. We won't turn there, but another one of these letters that Paul wrote during this first imprisonment or his time of house arrest is the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul makes a great statement there. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, I, Paul, the prisoner of Rome, or I, Paul, the prisoner of Nero. No, Paul knows that he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He knows that he's there in house arrest by appointment. And even earlier here in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says about his time in prison, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Paul knew that his life was under the the providential care of God and that whatever circumstances he was in were arranged and ordered by God. And you and I have to trust in God's providence And we do that, we can find contentment. We can yield our lives to God's plan. Look, don't fight the providence of God. A lot of Christians spend a lot of their time fighting against God's providence. Don't complain about it. Don't resist it. Accept it and see what God can do uh, through you and in you in that time. You know, Longfellow made a great statement years ago. He said, the best thing to do when it's raining is let it rain. The best thing to do when it's raining is let it rain. You can't stop it. You can't fight against it. You have to find the the purpose and the plan in it. Here's a great quote I read this week. Contentment is, is our glad submission wrapped in God's providence. We either accept it or we kick against it, but regardless, the plan goes forward. You can fight against it. You can kick against it. God's plan um, is going forward. Our contentment is our glad submission that's wrapped in the providence of God. We submit ourselves to God's providence uh, in our lives. I know uh, all of you here know the name uh, uh, Corey Ten Boom and her sister uh, Betsy Ten Boom. Uh, we were just uh, in Israel uh, a little over a month ago, and um, when we were there at the Yad Vashem, which is the, the Holocaust memorial there in Jerusalem, there's a row of, of trees out there of those who were a great blessing of, of, uh, to the Jewish people. And um, we go there every time when we go to Israel, but I was reminded of something this time that I had forgotten. I walked all the way down there by myself to where Cory Tin Boom's tree has been planted there at the Yad Vashem, and it's, it's the smallest tree there. The reason it's the smallest tree is when she died, the tree they had planted for her died. She had to replant another one, and it's uh, the smallest tree that's there. But you all know the story of her family who... Uh, hid uh, Jewish people during uh, the, the uh, German occupation of, of the Netherlands, 
Her whole family was, uh, her family was uh, sent away to concentration camps. Um, her and her elder sister, Betsy, were sent away to a concentration camp together. And I was reading a book this week that reminded me of this story. And here's the way the, the author put it. He said, Corey's eldest sister, Betsy, sickly her entire life with pernicious anemia, and now in her 50s, possessed an almost impossibly deep faith. When their barracks became infested with fleas, Betsy thanked God for the fleas. Corey, however, felt such piety stretched things too far, and she trusted God above everything, but thanksgiving for fleas was a bit too much. But, it, but the writer says this, the guards, it turned out, agreed with Corey about the fleas. They hated them too. As a result, they stopped checking the barracks of these women. And so it was that Betsy and Corey could keep their Bibles, be together as sisters, pray, have a Bible study, and encourage others. And then the author says this, contentment in a concentration camp with an infestation of fleas. How could victory be wrapped in a more unlikely package? Only the unseen world could have arranged such a thing. Now, I don't know about you, but that's convicting to me. Here we are in this time in which we live, and we're having a lot of inconvenience and disruption. But I'm not in a concentration camp infested with fleas. Surely, by God's grace and His power, I can experience contentment in these circumstances in life, and you can as well if these dear sisters of God could experience contentment in the condition they experienced. But they saw the providence of God in what was happening. You know, likewise, the Apostle Paul's situation was anything but ideal. Paul's again, he's under house arrest. He's chained to Roman guards. His life hangs in the balance. His close friend Epaphroditus almost died. You can read about that in Philippians chapter 2. False teachers had come and infiltrated the church at Philippi. Um, Others were taking advantage of Paul's absence to promote themselves. I mean, Paul's experiencing the extremities, the highs and the lows of life. He experienced extremities, uh, uh, both extremes and everything in between. I mean, look in verse 12. Paul says, I know how to get along with humble means. That literally means to be brought low. It was used uh, in that day of a river in a time of drought. So Paul's saying, look, I know what it's like to run low. And I also know how to live in prosperity. That word means to overflow, to to have more than enough. It it actually can mean extremely rich. So Paul, at some time in his life, had been extremely rich. But he also had been poverty-stricken, and he'd run low. And he says, I know what it is uh, to be filled and to go hungry. By the word there, being filled means to be stuffed. It was used of force-feeding animals to fatten them up. And I think some of us spending a lot of time at home may have been doing a little bit much of, too much of that here lately. I know I have been. But the secret of being stuffed, he says, but also of going hungry, of having abundance. That's that same word he used earlier again, of overflow and of suffering need. Paul says, look, I know what it's like to run low, and I know what it's like to overflow. But his language accentuates all the ups and downs of life. He knows what it's like to to have prosperity, and he knows what it's like to be in need. He knows what it's like to to go hungry. He knows what it's like to be stuffed and filled. All the extremes, the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs of life. Look, Paul was a man who was ready for anything. He was a man for all seasons. He was content whatever, whenever, wherever. And Paul is up for whatever's coming down. That's a dynamic contentment. It's the the grace-laced ability to adjust to and to advance in every circumstance of life. You know, our English word contentment comes from two Latin words, con and tenio. And when you put those together, it literally means to hold together. So contentment is the opposite of falling to pieces. So some have described contentment as containment. It's a sense of adequacy and containment that's rooted in the presence of Christ. It's it's being held together rather than falling to pieces. And Paul is saying to us here that contentment is something that's not external, but it's internal. Depends on what's happening inside of us. Jeremiah Burroughs was a great Puritan. He's written a very famous book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in that book, he says this, contentment is a work of the Spirit indoors. 
Contentment's a work of the Spirit indoors. It happens indoors, down inside of our heart and our life. And Paul's contentment is in Christ and the sufficiency of uh, His grace. Look, far too many of us have a contingent contentment. We would be content if only, if only. I'd be content if only I had better health, if only my children were more obedient, if only I had more money, if only my husband were more loving, if only my wife were more submissive, if only my kids could go back to school, if only things could get back to normal, if only my 401k plan would, that would go back up. Again, on and on we could go. But the Bible doesn't say be content when you have. It says be content with what you have. And Paul was always content because he had a dynamic contentment. It was not dependent on circumstances. It was internal, not external. There's a, a book that I read this last week. I actually reread it by Richard Swenson, um, a, a doctor. I mean, it's, it's just a book simply titled Contentment. It's got a lot of good stuff in it, but this, this quote really struck me. He says, it's very easy for people to claim contentment when flush with success. They look at their bounty, then they look at others and declare victory. But this is a situational contentment, and it's often temporary. What happens if such people lose their jobs, their health, their reputation, or their home? The truth is, insecurity, not contentment, reigns in the human spirit regardless of our possession pile. It is just covered up with a layer of veneer. For most of us, one spectacularly bad day would be enough to erase decades of contentment veneer. But when I read that, it pierced to my heart because I thought about my own life and I think, how much of my contentment is just a veneer, just a, a thin kind of veneer that looks good as long as everything's going the way I like it in life? But can one spectacularly bad day come in and erase decades of a contentment veneer? That's not what you and I want in our lives. We want a contentment that's deep. Let me just mention here quickly a couple of important qualifications when we talk about contentment. Being content doesn't mean that you can't try to better yourself. Contentment's not complacency about things that ought to be changed. Contentment is not accepting mediocrity. We should all work hard, get educated, learn a skill, do what we do with persistence and excellence in life. You can still be ambitious and be content, but it needs to be a sanctified ambition that is still um, submits itself to the will of God. To be ambitious, certainly to do the best we can in life, but still submitting to the will of God and His providence to give us what He deems best. So the first qualification is, it doesn't mean you can't better yourself. A second qualification is, you and I should be content with what we have, but never with who we are. Back in Philippians 3.12, Paul, writing here probably in his early to maybe late 60s, says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, or that is mature, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Look, Paul is a man who's content with the circumstances of life, but he has a, a holy discontent with his spiritual life. He's still pressing forward in the maturity process, trying to lay hold of that for which he was laid hold of by Christ, which is to be more like the Lord Jesus. Look, if we're honest, the problem with most of us is we're satisfied with who we are, but we're not satisfied with what we have. We have it backwards. The Bible says, always be satisfied with what you have, but don't ever be satisfied with who you are or what you are. Always realize that you need to mature, you need to grow more to become like Jesus Christ. But the key point here is that our contentment is to be a dynamic contentment. Now, the second point here about contentment is it's developed. There's four verbs here that communicate how Paul acquired contentment. Notice in verse 11, I have learned. Then down in verse 12, I know. Then on down a little bit farther, I know. And then a little bit farther down, I have learned. So four verbs, I have learned, I know, I know, I have learned. Twice, he says, I've learned to be content. Contentment is not instant, it's not innate, it's not instinctive, it's not intuitive. 
It's not normal and natural for us as human beings. Contentment is not automatic. It's not part of the basic software package when you and I were born. It's it's not pre-installed. In fact, if anything, we'd say the opposite is true. Discontent is what's pre-installed in our hearts because of our sin nature. And contentment's not injected into us in a single dose. It doesn't happen overnight. The only way to dislodge discontent is to learn it away. You have to learn it away. It has to be learned over a lifetime. Contentment is acquired by experience in the ebbs and flows and the ups and downs of life over time as we learn to trust God more and to trust ourselves less. Look, these days that we're in right now are affording all of us a great opportunity to learn contentment. Uh, we're, we're in it, we might call a contentment curriculum right now in our country. This is a great opportunity for all of us to spend some time in the school of contentment. So in that sense, this is a good place for us to be, and we don't want to waste the opportunity for God to to teach us uh, the secret of contentment. Now think about this. If contentment is learned over time by hard work, then older believers should be the most content people in the church. Isn't that right? If it takes time and it's learned through the ebbs and flows of life, those who are older, who've lived longer, should be the most content. It's been well said that the devil's crowning work is a bitter, discontent old person. Someone who's failed all the exams God has sent their way. He's sent exams and ebbs and flows and ups and downs of life, and they failed the exams, and they've gotten progressively bitter in life instead of better. Look, don't let your life end up that way. Learn the secret of contentment. Take this time now and this curriculum contentment God's giving to us. Put us into school. Let's not waste the opportunity to learn uh, to be content. Down in verse 12, Paul says, I have learned the secret. Literally in the Greek, it's I have been initiated. This is a a Greek technical term referring to the initiation rites that was required for a person who wished to enter any of the secrets and privileges of mystery religions in that day. Paul borrows this word from the realm of religions of that day to communicate to his readers. So Paul is saying here, I've been let in on the secret. Bit by bit, test by test, circumstance by circumstance, Paul says, I've been moving through the degrees, if you will, of initiation to learn the secret of contentment. When he says, I've learned to be content, we we haven't really defined this word yet, but the biblical word contentment really means to be satisfied, to have enough, to have sufficiency. I mean, it was a a great word of pagan ethics. It was actually the the highest aim of the Stoics in Paul's day. The word was used in that day of a person who through discipline had become independent of external circumstances, who discovered within himself the resources that were uh, required uh, for any situation that might arise. So it was a self-sufficiency. It was not needing any outside help. Of course, that was the, the goal of the Stoics in Paul's day. But Christian contentment is actually an independence from outward circumstances through dependence on the Lord, though, and not ourselves. That's the difference. Contentment is containment. We learn over time that we have sufficiency, that we have adequacy in Christ. Again, as we go through these ups and downs and ebbs and flows of life, we learn over time the adequacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We learn over time that He's enough. Look, contentment's dynamic. It's for all seasons and circumstances. Contentment is developed. You have to learn it. The only way to get rid of discontent, you have to learn it away. And then thirdly, we see here that contentment is divine. Verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, this is one of the best-known, often-quoted verses in the New Testament. It's only six words in the original Greek. And actually, the verse begins, all things I can do through the one who strengthens me. So the all things there is the scope of this. Now, again, I know you all know this. I've mentioned this in sermons before, but this is a very abused, misinterpreted verse. Uh, Again, you see it on T-shirts all the time, you know, things related to sports. 
Um, yeah, you can go out and quote, uh, you know, Philippians 4.13 all you want to, but, uh, you know, if you're uh, five foot nine and you can't jump, you're not going to dunk a basketball. Um, you know, on and on we can go. I mean, everybody, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Like, you know, if I just trust in him enough, you know, I can go out and do superhuman athletic feats. It's not what this is talking about. All things, which is the, the first words in verse 13 in the Greek there, all things goes back to what has been spoken of in verse 12. All things is defined by verse 12. And the all things here, again, are the ups and downs of life, the varied circumstances, situation, and fluctuations of life. Whether you have the kids at home or the kids aren't at home, or whether you have full income or lower income, whether you have more to do or less to do, whether you have freedom to do what we want or we have to shelter at home, whether we have plenty to do or we're bored. What he's saying here, in all the circumstances of life, I can do all things through the one who strengthens me. In this context, it refers to all the circumstances of life. And you and I are experiencing a lot of those ebbs and flows of life right now. So the scope of it is all things. It's all the circumstances of life. And then you notice the strength of it. I can do. And it means to be strong or to have strength. So all things, all the ups and downs of life, I can do and be strengthened. But notice then the source of this. In the one who infuses strength into me. It's the present tense in the Greek. To the one who is constantly infusing and pouring his strength into me. Paul is saying here, I have power within to face all the conditions and varied circumstances of life because Jesus is constantly infusing and pouring his strength into me. That's the secret to contentment, us allowing Jesus to pour his strength into our lives, to handle and to be adequate for these circumstances of life. A lot of you know the name Lawrence of Arabia. Um, his name was T.E. Lawrence, spent a lot of time in, in, in that part of the world. But uh, after World War I, he took some of his Arab friends uh, for a trip to Paris. And he went around and showed them all the great sites that were there, and they were really unimpressed. The number one thing they were impressed with were the faucet in the bathtub in their hotel rooms. They would go in there and he'd find them turning it on and turn it off and turning it on and turning it off. You can imagine people from Arabia where it's dry and there's no water, to be able to just turn on a lever and receive water on demand was something that was fascinating to them. And before they were ready to leave Paris to go back to Arabia, he walked into one of the rooms and he found some of the men in there with wrenches trying to disconnect the faucet. And he asked him, why are you doing that? And they said, it's very dry in Arabia. What we need there are faucets. And of course, he had to explain to them that it's not the faucet that's key, but it's the source of the faucet. It's what it's hooked onto. And he told them about pipes in the wall and how ultimately it was rain and snow on the Alps that provided the water that ultimately came in uh, through that faucet. And for you and for me, the faucet of, of Christianity, the faucet of Christ's sufficiency is always on. It's always on full blast. And all you and I have to do is simply to stay in close, intimate contact and communion with Him and allow His strength to pour into our lives and then, God willing, through our lives to others as we pour out refreshment. I love what one person said. He says, contentment doesn't come from what you have, but whom you have. That's what contentment's about. It's not about what we have. It's about whom we have, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I read a quote earlier by Warren Wiersbe. I want to read that quote again, but he says something else after it that I want to include this time. He said, what life does to us depends on what life finds in us. And what life finds in us depends on what we find daily in Christ and His Word. What life does to us depends on what life finds in us. And what life finds in us depends on what we find daily in Christ and in His Word. You and I find in Christ and in His Word daily what we need to handle all the ups and downs, all the extremities and exigencies of life. Look, it's the presence of Jesus on the inside that fortifies us against the press of life on the outside. 
It's the presence of Christ that keeps us contained and content, that holds us together in all the ebbs and flows and ups and downs of life. There's a a quote I read this week by R. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Philippians. This really struck me. This is a good one. He says, do you want to fly? Do Do you want to fly an airplane? Go to flight school. But please do not take the controls of an airplane reciting Philippians 4.13. Are you a non-golfer who wants to shoot 70? Understanding that muttering, I can do all things through him who strengthens me before you tee off, will turn your fellow golfers into atheists. However, if you're following Christ's call and serving him faithfully in the task to which he's called you, Paul's confident words are yours. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And then he says this, this is really good. Wide swings of fortune await us all. At times, many of us will experience bounding prosperity, and all of us will know devastating hardships. But because Christ is the center of our life, we can be content. Both abundance and loss will pass, but Christ remains the same. That's beautiful. Look, all of us here, Most of us here maybe experience some degree of prosperity in our lives. All of us, if we live long enough, will know devastating hardships. But if Christ is the center of our life, we can be content. Both abundance and loss will pass. Christ remains the same. That's the secret of contentment. Anchoring our lives to the one who remains the same. Drawing our strength from him through intimate communion and contact with him. Look, that's how you and I can be ready for anything. Life's throwing a lot at at, at us, many of us right now. But the Bible tells us we can be ready for anything. That's how you and I can learn how to play life uh, where it drops the ball. Let's pray together. We've talked a lot here today about the adequacy of Jesus. But you can't have a life centered in Jesus if you don't know him. Back in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul wrote these beautiful words, that I could be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul is saying there that the Lord will come and He'll take away the, 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 all your sins. He'll wash you clean. He'll take away the, the, the filthy robe of your own righteousness. He'll clothe you in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ if you'll come and you'll accept Him. It's the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You can have all your sins washed away right now, and you can stand before God in the beauty of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you'll simply come to Him in faith, come as a sinner, and take Jesus Christ to be your Savior from sin. If you've never done that, why not trust Him now? Take Jesus He'll become your strength. He'll become your adequacy. He'll become everything uh, that you need. Father, teach us the secret of contentment in these times in which we find ourselves. We can be ready for anything through Him who pours His strength into us. Father, help us to draw near to Jesus. Teach us the the sufficiency of His grace for every situation of life that we face. Father, we ask this in the precious name of our Savior. Amen.
someone once said that uh, we all live our life in a tent. We live our life in one of two tents. We li- live in content or discontent. And I pray today that uh, whatever comes our way in life, uh, that you and I will uh, live in content. We will find our contentment in the adequacy and the sufficiency of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. My prayer is that God will, will help us all pass uh, this contentment test that we're all facing together, uh, that we might be pleasing uh, to the Lord. So we ask now for the Lord to come and dismiss us in the power and the sufficiency of the indwelling Christ. God bless you all. Uh, Lord willing, we'll see you next week.